Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. Christ. 
Uh, and without that, without that admission, he probably not would he probably would not uh, had been as quickly headed toward the cross as he was. They used that as a fast track to Calvary. But here, when he said, "Thou says," what he is telling them is that it is as you have declared. Art thou the Christ? Thou says. You have put the nail right on the head. Is what he told them, and it angered them, and it frustrated. Them. And we, I do say this tonight. I'm glad this evening that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. Amen. I'm not looking. I'm not. I'm not trusting from the moment that I got saved as an eight-year-old boy to this very night. All these many years later, I'm not trusting Him. I hope uh, this man is the Christ. I know He is who He said He is, and because He is who He said He is. He can take me to heaven when I leave this world. Amen. And I'm thankful to be resting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not tonight, until you do, you will never be on your way to heaven. It's not religion. It's not relationship with higher-ups in this world. It's not having the right connections. It's not going through religious rites such as baptism or communion. It is none of those things. It doesn't have anything to do with how much wealth you have to give to charity and to good uh, works, amen, that the world will look at it and smile upon, that will not get you into heaven, but the only thing that will get you there is trusting in Christ and Christ alone. When we come to this passage of Scripture, Jesus is in the middle of writing salvation's story on, on the scene of the world. He is on the way to Calvary. And here we find that Jesus is on His way to accomplishing the greatest task that any man has ever committed. Uh, he is on His way uh, to while the devil and the world may look at it as a failure, He is on His way to be in the, to, to, uh, to committing an act for our life and for our soul that is the most successful act that has ever been engaged in. And that was when He died for our sins in the eyes of God, God was satisfied and said that <coughs> that payment was successful. While Jesus is <coughs> going through everything that He is going through <coughs> to pay for our sins, we find here that the Apostle Peter, while this is a shining moment for Jesus, not quite so shining of a moment for Peter. While this is a moment that we look at it and we give Jesus glory for in what He is doing in this scene, this is not Peter's brightest hour. What we find Peter doing is truly one of the greatest blights upon the entire life and ministry of the Apostle Peter. Now let me say this tonight. I am thankful that this is not the end of the story for the Apostle Peter. I am thankful this evening that Peter went on after this moment and as it brought him to him seeing what he has done in verse 62 of Matthew, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 22 in verse 62, the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly that 
as a sign of a broken heart and a repentant heart. And we know that Peter got right with God because God used him in the future. And can I say this this evening? This is not the theme of the message. I'm headed toward the topic I want to preach on. But can I say this this evening? If this very night and this very day is not the brightest hour in your life, can I say that with God, amen, God is able to write another chapter and to give you hope for a better tomorrow, amen, where you don't have to have a life and a testimony and a ministry and a work for God that is over just because your, your hour, this hour may not be the brightest. God can write another chapter in your life. God can use you again if you let Him. Amen. If your life's filled with sin, weep bitterly. Get it right with God. Come to God. Confess that sin. Get it under the blood as Peter did. And go on for the glory of God. Filled with the power of God. And do the work that God would have for you to do. Don't forget where God brought you from. And let this moment that may not be the brightest hour in your life encourage you to do better than you've ever done for the Lord Jesus. I personally believe that when you look at the, the books of First and Second Peter, as you study the writings of Peter, there toward the end of his life and there uh, toward the last several pages of the Word of God, as Peter writes after this moment, I believe if you look just close enough and carefully enough, you can see the results Amen. The remnants of this moment that is encouraging Peter to say everything that he says and to be more steadfastly devoted to Jesus than he ever was. I believe that this moment propelled Peter forward into the life that he had to where his testimony did not end up the way that we find it here. Here's the question that I have tonight. Remember I told you this is just a springboard passage but when we look at this passage of Scripture, as I've already mentioned, this is not the, bright, not the brightest moment in Peter's life, not the, not the shining moment of achievement in Peter's life. Some of those things had been passed and some were to come, but this very moment is not one of those mountain peak chapters in Peter's life, not one of those glorious deeds that Peter did fully surrendering and giving his life to the complete control of Jesus Christ. We find Peter in his, probably his worst hour. We find Peter in a sin that is detailed for us in the Bible to where he literally said, I do not know that man. Speaking about Jesus. I don't know if I can imagine things very much worse for a Christian to do than to publicly and multiple times publicly deny their Savior. Here's my question for tonight, though. This passage of Scripture calls my mind to ask this question. This is about as bad as a Christian could ever get to publicly deny their Savior. This is as unthinkable as anything I could think, and as much as I would like to say that uh, there will never be a temptation to do similarly in our life, uh, I know that with our flesh that is very possible. Here's the question that I put on, that the Lord put on my mind, and I, I guess it has come to my mind much more recently. 
because the more I talk to people about the Lord and the longer I pastor in South Carolina and the longer I live here as a saved child of God, I cannot help but... I'm th- let, let me say this before I say what I was about to say. I'm thankful I was born in the Bible Belt. I'm thankful God let me be born to where there's a church on every corner. And up until recently, most of those were preaching the truth. At least the semblance of the truth. To where you can at least hear the gospel and be saved. A lot of times, in years in the past, really, even the multiple denominations could at least get the gospel right years ago. We've departed much from that in our recent years. But I mentioned this even last night to my wife. I wonder if in the last hundred years, last 50 years or so, if being from this part of the world, being from the Bible Belt, has done more damage to those that are born here than it has ever spiritually helped those that are born here. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If you talk to any person on the street in the, on the, in the streets of Lexington, South Carolina, you will find multiplicities of people who have semblances of religion. They are very comfortable with the name Jesus. They are very comfortable with talking about the things of God. You can give them the gospel. They can quote it back to you. And they are a million miles away from actually understanding the words that came out of their mouth. To where we can be so religious, but so lost, so confused, so disturbed in our thoughts on what is truth and what is right and what is the gospel. I couldn't help but think about one of the greatest misconceptions in our day is multiple areas but concerning salvation. You talk to people about the Lord and one of the things you'll find out is here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, here in Lexington, South Carolina, the majority of the people that you will talk to will readily admit they know who Jesus is, will readily admit to being, to being, uh, being uh, raised in a Bible-believing church, many of which will admit to you that they were raised in a Baptist church. And if you ask them why they're going to heaven, they will tell you because they've been baptized. They will tell you because a preacher walked into a side room and, and, and went through a plan with them and, and gave them assurance of their salvation. There was no conviction. There was no draw of the Spirit. There was, there was, no, uh, there was nothing more than a mental ascent to the truth and no accepting Christ with their heart and believing on Him and Him alone for salvation. And we are so warped in our understanding of the Scriptures. And those that truly have received the gospel, even they are confused about what the Bible says concerning salvation. They may know I trust Christ, but then one of the greatest issues, and I'm telling you, even as the pastor of this church, I have run into time and time and time and time again is people dealing with the assurance of their salvation, people dealing with whether or not we can keep our salvation. I've dealt with people in the nursing homes. I've dealt with people in the jails. I've dealt with people much older than I am who have been in church longer than I've been alive, and they cannot tell you that they can tell you what is right concerning salvation, but they cannot tell 
tell you whether they can truly and confidently know that they will keep their salvation forever. They can't, they can't admit that. And I'm telling you, as a, a church that I hope is filled with genuine, blood-bought, blood-washed saints of God, I want you to know assuredly that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, that that salvation is not temporary. It's forever. Ecclesiastes says this about our God. It says what God does, He does forever. God does not do anything halfway. You say, well, what does that have to do with Peter? My question is this, is with Peter doing what he did, does that mean that because of this heinous, because of this, uh, this unimaginable sin, does that mean that Peter had to, ask, had to be saved again? Does that mean that there had to there, that this moment excluded him from being able to be saved, to be a part of God's family. Can I say this? If there's any sin that could do it, I would for a child of God, I would imagine denying that you even know the Lord would be it. Our salvation, one of the terms in the Bible that we use concerning salvation is somebody coming to know the Lord. Amen. Peter said, I know not the man. He would be denying even at the most basic tenet of what salvation does. And that is bring a lost sinner into a relationship with a holy God. He said, I know not the man. Anything could cause him probably to default on that, if I can use this uh, modern terminology, to default on that contract that he made with Jesus, it would be this sin. But can I tell you this evening that all he had to do was repent of this sin and get forgiveness from the Lord. He was just as much saved after the denial as he was before the denial. And I don't know what you're going through this evening. I don't know whether what your besetting sin is. I don't know what that sin is that's just so hard for you to break and that thing that you constantly go back to. I don't know what you've done this uh, this day. I don't know where your thoughts have been. Amen. And I know none of us want anybody to know the things that we've done and the things that we have thought. Amen. And the things of the worldly carnal things that even our heart has been on at different periods of time today. We never want to admit our sins. But can I say this? I don't have to know any of that to know that if you truly trusted in Christ and Christ alone, if you truly called upon the name of the Lord and you meant what you said when you believed that Jesus is who He said He is and He did what He did, amen, when He died on the cross and He died in your place and He took the wrath of God on Calvary so you would have to face the wrath of God in an eternal burning hell and you trust in that. Amen. And that alone. If you've done that, no matter what you've done this week, you're just as much saved tonight 
as you were before you messed up. As you were before you sinned. Now let me say this. I know that seems like a cop-out in the eyes of the world. Preacher, are you saying that you can just do anything you want to do and you can just live any way you want to live and, and, and still be saved at the end of it? I will say this. When I got saved, my want to change. When Christ came in my heart and took residence in my heart and the Spirit of God is leading me and guiding me in all truth, amen, He made me a new creature in Christ, amen, part of that, all things passed away and all things becoming new, part of what took place in that moment was what I wanted to do, change. Amen. Does that mean that I won't ever mess up? No, that's not what that means. Here's what the eternal, the, the, the biblical doctrine of eternal security means. It means that God in salvation will change your want to, and God in salvation will make you new to where you won't want to do the things that you uh, used to do. But in those moments that we're still human and still flesh, there's enough of the blood of Jesus to still get us to His heaven. There's enough of the grace and the mercy of God, amen, to cover my fault and my failure and my mess up. Aren't you glad tonight there's enough grace and blood and mercy and forgiveness to cover it all? It's not a license to sin, but it is the grace of God and our momentary humanity when we won't physically be perfect until we get to heaven and be with God. Amen. It covers it all. It covered it all for Peter and it will cover it all for us. So, tonight I want to share just a couple of things from the Word of God. I may, I may just, I've been, I've enjoyed that first part so much, I may just have to give you one of them. That's not, that's not news to y'all. Amen. I'm sure most of you probably want me to feed my sermons to you all at a time. Amen. If I throw them all on you, might be too much, might be, amen, overfed, overkill. Don't want to do that tonight. We'll say this though. I am thankful that what God does, He does forever. Amen. If I had to keep myself saved, I'd never be able to do it. But I'm thankful that the Word of God tells us that we're not keeping ourselves saved. But it is He that is keeping us saved. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, God's description. God's description of our salvation tells us that we are eternally secure in Him. The way the Word of God describes our salvation should be enough to convince our hearts that we are secure. Go with me, please. And, and, and I know this is going to, I know you can quote it, but I want you to lay your eyes on it. Take your, Bible, take your Bibles with me to the Bible's most famous verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. While you're turning there, I'm going to have you grab First Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 as well. John 3.16, 1 Timothy 1.16. The Bible gives us a description of salvation that just the way God describes what He does in a person's life should be enough to convince us that we are eternally secure in Him. John 3, verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter number 3 describes salvation as life that never ends. It is perpetual life. It is consistent and never ending life. The reason why <coughs> the reason why salvation is life eternal is life eternal. Amen. My voice has been fine all day. <coughs> I've been in my office by myself studying, hadn't used my voice today. The minute I start preaching on salvation and help trying to help our church know what the Bible says about how to know you're saved forever, amen, I start getting choked up. <clears throat> Never convince me that there's not there's not opposition from hell when a man stands in Here's what I was trying to say. Maybe if I dial it back just a little bit, maybe I can get through it without choking. <laughs> the reason why salvation is is a eternal, everlasting, constant life. The verse says it. It's because God loved the world. Amen. So loved the world. If His love is exactly the way the Bible is describing it here, that He is trying to provide eternal life as opposed to up to eternal perishing in hell. If God really loved the world the way that He says He loves the world, then He is going to give them something that will always last, and it won't just be there for them for just a few days, just a few months. Or really, if we'd be honest, if it was from one sin to the next, we'd have to get saved a million, probably a thousand times in a day. From moment to moment. Can you imagine? This, this is what breaks my heart about all of the denominations uh, that teach uh, what is called in ecclesiastical terms Arminian theology. They teach that you can lose your salvation. Yes, sir. What breaks my heart is the fact, number one, because they are being taught what is not in the Bible, they live their entire life with no peace. Yeah, that's right. Those that claim to be saved are in constant fear of hell. Do you think that if God loved the world so much that he would give you a salvation that is so temporary it would always cause you to be in constant fear of going to hell? God here is, is I've preached, I preached a series here, I don't know if you remember several years ago, called Salvation Story. Out of John 3.16. God is writing salvation story. And in the same the story of salvation, it is that there is a God that loved the world so much that He is wanting to provide a full solution to the problem of perishing and going to hell. If salvation was not eternal, then God didn't through Christ did not offer anyone in this world a true solution. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not 
bears. Now, there, there's so many ways I can mention this. I've got to just walk through the verse. If God loved the world like He said He loved the world, then He's not going to give a temporary solution. His love would motivate Him to give a permanent solution to the problem of perishing. But notice this now. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If the problem is going to hell, and it was, and it is. If the problem is perishing, then here when he says that he gave his only begotten son, would the fact if the Armenians are right, if the Methodists are right, that believe you can lose your salvation. If the Pentecostals are right, and the charismatics are right that they say that they believe you can lose your salvation. Does that not cheapen the gift that God gave? God is not giving gold that perishes here. God did not pay for man's redemption in silver. He did not pay with wood, hay, or stubble. He did not pay with the U.S. dollar or any form of currency that this world has ever had. He didn't pay with a Roman denarii. He did not give what you and I would give as a payment, as a solution. What many people use in this world as a solution to their problems. You think about it, you got a bill, there's a problem, you use the lights, and now the light companies want you to make, make uh, good on the, the problem that uh, you initiated running the light bill up. The way you solve that problem is you take your money, you pay, use your debit card, however it is, that has that cash value, and you settle the score. That's how we solve problems. Much of the way we solve problems in this life. Jesus was given as God's way of providing a solution to the problem of perishing. If this is something that just lasts for a moment until your next bad thought, to your next evil deed, if this gift that he gave is something so temporary that you will have to be in fear of perishing day by day. That doesn't say very much about what God gave to the world to give them eternal life. It means that Jesus, it's almost blasphemous to say, but y'all know the spirit I'm saying this in, it means that Jesus is not valuable enough to cover your sin. There's not enough value within him to take care of your soul. Now, I understand people have been taught what they've been taught. But you boil this down. And by the way, the very first church door I ever walked into, that my family walked, walked me into, the church that my sister is still a member of today has taught her over and over again, you lose your salvation. Now, I'll say this. I'm not sure if she actually believes it or not. I don't know. I'd much, I'd, I'd rather see my sister drive almost two hours to come to church with us than to be peddled the mess that she gets peddled sometimes. God brought your pastor 
out of a church. The very first time I walked into church, it was a church. I remember sitting as a teenager in a youth event where the man that is now my sister's pastor got up and mocked openly, openly, all of his friends that believed in eternal security. That man is her pastor today. Not the pastor who grew up under, but he's her pastor today. I remember that as a young teenage boy, 12, 13 years old. I'm thankful that by the grace of God, He protected me, guarded me, and guided me to where even as I'm listening to that, in my heart as a saved child of God, only been saved for a few years, said, that just don't sound right to me. That don't sound much like my God. And then God brought me to a Bible preaching church that preached the truth and showed me from the Word of God that salvation is not temporal. To teach what they teach. These are good-hearted people. These are people who love Jesus. And some people in those churches are living holier and cleaner lives than any of us will ever live. And that's part of what breaks my heart so much. Because you can be the Bible says great men are not always wise. You can be the best Christian in the world and have been fed your entire life false doctrine. I'm not throwing off on those people. I'm preaching to the church that God has called me to pastor. And I'll say this. I know almost all of you are saying amen. You believe what I'm telling you. But, I, but, I, but, I, but I'm saying this tonight as well. Even as I've been pastor here, I have met time and time again with, with individuals who have been in Baptist churches their whole life, have been saved by the grace of God, and constantly deal, uh, constantly struggle with assurance of their salvation. And the fact of the matter is, when you boil it down to the brass tacks of it all, just the way the Bible describes salvation, should assure us that if you truly meant business with God, God meant business with you, and not on my words or a sermon in a Baptist church or some kind of religious philosophy. No, it is on this King James Bible. It is on the authority of God's Word that you can know that if you've ever trusted Christ, you're saved right now. My pastor used to say this. I've quoted it. I even quoted it as of late in this pulpit in the invitation. My pastor used to say this all the time from the pulpit. He used to say, I'm not. He got saved September 12, 1995 as a 21-year-old man. He said, I don't have to go back to September 12, 1995 to be able to tell you that I got saved. He said, I can look back on my relationship with God today and that it's still good today and it's still holding today to let you know that I'm saved. I don't have to go back to a day. You're looking at a person. I can tell you how old I was when I got saved by the grace of God, but I can't circle a day on the I can't rejoice in the anniversary. I can't tell you when that day was. I can't say this though. I can rejoice every single year when I come to the end of the year that Halloween at some point in time in that year there was another year of security and the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The description of salvation should be enough 
to assure our hearts that we've been born again and that we have it forever. God so loved the world. If his love was the love that I believe this text is describing, that it would not provide temporal, that he gave his only begotten son. If salvation was not forever, then it would cheapen the gift of God and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word begotten there, God, his only begotten son, that word begotten means that he was issued forth from God. That's why, and I, and I know I know not everybody agrees with us on what the Bible says. I'm telling you though, and I know I preach on this hard and heavy on Sunday, on Sunday, amen, one of the two services, I don't remember which, but I know I mentioned it on Sunday, but I'm telling you that's the reason why I still hold close to me a Bible that has the word begotten in it. It's not his one and only son. Right. If you're saved, you're a son of God. I'm a son of God. Amen. Adam in the Bible was called a son of God. So many people in the Scriptures were called the son of God, but there was only one son that was physically issued from God, and that was Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. I said that to say this. If he is the begotten son of God, that means he was issued forth from God, that means that not only the giver, but also the gift that is being given for our sin is God. If the giver gives a gift, I would imagine it would not be so uh, so valueless and so and, and, and so and so uh, corrupt that it would only be temporary. And if the gift itself is God then I would surmise that it could not be without great value. To, to say that Jesus only bled enough for He Himself was only valuable enough to cover me for a short period of time, it devalues the gift, and the gift can't be devalued because the gift is God. You picking up what I'm laying down tonight? There's no way! If he's issued from God, and that means he is God, that can't, God himself cannot be devalued. He's totally perfect. He's totally enough. He is totally satisfactory. You cannot cheapen that gift to where it cannot be eternal. Here's the last thing I'll mention out of this verse and we'll be done. I hope you enjoy the introduction. Amen. I hope you enjoy the first part of the first point. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but I sure did. Praise the Lord. The last phrase, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Amen. I've I've mentioned to you in the past that in different messages as we've read that word have before, the word have in the English language is a word that denotes possession. Got some school teachers in here that could set me straight on that, but I, that is correct. I know it is. When you have something, it is a word that means that you have something. It is in your possession. 
God, the Bible says here, that the Bible says that He wants us to possess eternal life. Amen. He wants us to have it. He wants it to be secured for us. The word have everlasting life in this verse denotes that they will constantly have everlasting life as a possession. It does not give any notion of a temporal nature at all, but what God in giving Christ wanted to do was give you everlasting life as a possession for now and for every other moment in your existence. It's for you to have it means that you're not losing it at all. You've always got it. And then when he says, whosoever believes in him should not perish. What that means is, is that when he gave Christ, he wanted to make sure that you would always be in a position of not perishing. If, if salvation that you accepted when you called on God and you asked Him to save you, if it was not enough to cut for, there was not enough mercy, there was not enough grace, there was not enough blood, there was not enough value in Christ to get you beyond just that initial trust until your next sin. When you sin and you lose your salvation, you are now in the path of perishing again. If you sin and you lose it now, you're on your way to hell again. You're on the path to perishing again. That's not what John 3.16 says. He says that when He gave Christ and you believe on Him, He wants you to be at a place where you will not perish. Never, not good English, but it's good preaching. Never, ever, 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 ever perish. Should not perish. When I was an eight-year-old boy, I accepted Christ as my Savior. In that moment, I was no longer perishing. I couldn't perish if I wanted to. I couldn't go in the path of perishing. And since that day, it has been 21 years because of what Jesus says here in John 3, 6, 10. The way He describes salvation and the Bible's most famous, most simple verse. I don't say this. He said this about me. And if you're saved, He says it about you. That when you placed your faith in Him and you believed on Him, He gave you something that would cause you to never perish. Every moment in those 21 years, I could say, I'm not perishing. Because of God giving His only begotten Son, because of me believing in what Jesus did, I don't perish anymore. It's out of the realm of reality in my life. I'm not a perisher anymore. I'm an ever-liver now. Amen. And tell you, so many things are bad in for real good I'm going to live forever. The opposite of perishing is life. The opposite of life is perishing. Before you got saved, you were a perisher. 
you were perishing. You were headed to a place of everlasting perishing, everlasting death, everlasting destruction. But when you trusted in what Christ did, God gave you the opposite of what you had. You, when you were lost, you didn't have momentary lapses of not perishing. From the day that you were conceived, and you were conceived in sin up until you got saved, you were always perishing. And if you didn't trust Christ, you always would be perishing. If perishing is the opposite of life, and life is the opposite of perishing, and we look at where we were with before Christ, why is it that things would be different after salvation? If I'm eternally perishing before Christ, why would I not be eternally living after Christ? It's contradictory in nature to believe what so many out there are teaching. And I just want you to have a firm uh, grasp, even if it's just this one fault tonight, for it to be very clear for you to understand for yourself that if you meant business with God, God meant business with you, and He changed everything around. He gave you the opposite of what you had. You had parenting. He gives you life. Everlasting parenting has been transmitted. Stop being life. Means your salvation will never stop. If it never stops, how could you lose it? I'd say this tonight. <clears throat> On the basis of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have. Always have everlasting life. On the basis of John 3.16, if there ever was a day in your life where you truly trusted Christ, you are secure in the gift of God. You are safe in the gift of God. Am I telling you now you can go out and do anything you want to? No. Because if you can do anything you want to and there be no pull in another direction, you don't have what I have. You don't have enough to feel safe in. You need to make your calling election sure. You're not secure if that's the way you are and things on the inside haven't been changed to the point to where you don't, that, that sense doesn't even make sense to you to just do whatever when God has done what Jesus did, what he did for you, for you to return that by just doing anything you want to do, and you're okay with that, and there's no there's no remorse, there's no guilt, there's no, the Bible uses the word conviction, there's no conviction over that. Peter, same Peter that denied the Lord and found out that there was enough grace to forgive even his greatest mess up, he is the one that said to us that, that we ought to make our calling election short. In other words, you ought to make sure you're saved. If, you're, if, if, if these things are confusing to you, if these things, you don't know what I'm talking about this evening, I'd love to help you tonight through the Word of God to make your calling and election sure, to help you know for certain that you're saved. And if you are saved in here, you're an awful, an awful safe place. Because you're in the hands of Jesus Christ. And he said that no man can pluck us out of his hand. I'm in the safest place I can be in. 
not be, not because I lock my doors at night. You're not safe this evening, probably because you've got a firearm on your uh, your side or in your purse, ladies. Amen. You're not safe for that. We're not safe this evening because there's a security system on the outside of this building. We're, 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 we're not secure for any of those reasons. I'm talking about more secure than all of that, more than Smith and Weston could ever do for me. Jesus Christ has done for me, and he's done it not just in this life alone, but in the life to come. He's given me eternal salvation. If you meant business with God, you don't have to struggle with assurance of your salvation. John 3.16 gave it to you. My call to you tonight is to rest in what God said. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm done preaching tonight. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com. Oh, Jesus.